The NCAA took a big step toward helping football teams get ready to play this fall by greenlighting voluntary on-campus workouts to begin. Bronco Mendenhall's UVA football program continues to clean up on the recruiting trail, and Virginia Tech's football and basketball programs each lost another transfer. We'll talk about all that and much, much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 11 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and I'm joined as always by the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, my co-host, David Teal. As some of you have noticed, we're going to drop these new episodes every other week over the summer. We'll get back to our weekly routine once college football starts its season whenever that may be. Certainly, we hope it's sooner rather than later. Uh, All of the energy in today's show is going to have to come from David and Dean, our producer, because my son, who turns one-year-old next month, has suddenly stopped sleeping through the night. So I'm I'm a little bit uh, running on fumes this morning. And uh, David, I hope you'll be able to, to carry me through. Mike, I have some sympathy for you, my friend. Uh, ours is eight, and she still has some nights where she doesn't sleep all the way through. So, so I, I, I hate to tell you that it's not even close to over. I, w- I will not mention to my wife because we were hoping we were almost out of the woods. <laughs> uh, David, while, while we were on break for a little bit there, uh, the nation celebrated a kind of odd, socially distant Memorial Day. Uh, how was that handled at the Teal household? Anything fun there? Well, it was it was pretty quiet. We usually have a uh, Memorial Day Sunday family gathering, not at our home, but uh, here locally of about 40 to 50 people. And obviously uh, that went by the wayside. So it was very quiet uh, here at uh, Shea Teal and hit some of our local haunts for some carry-out food. But other than that, very low-key. Yeah, it's an, it's an odd adjustment. It's it's one of my favorite, uh, you know, times to have people over to the house. And, um, you know, we have a kind of big grassy backyard, a fire pit and a grill. And um, I like to, to cram it with people. And I've sort of been the, the big stickler here on not doing anything and not interacting with anybody. And, and I softened up a little bit. We had uh, two other couples over. They set up their chairs kind of 10 feet apart. <laughs> I I grilled some chicken thighs and some sausage and some corn, and then I put down plates and let people come and get them. So we had a, a very socially distant but enjoyable Memorial Day and uh, just good to, to kind of reconnect with, with other people uh, for, for a day. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, we've had some family sessions, again, like you, socially distant, and everybody spreading their chairs either in the driveway or the, the front yard, and we, and we do the best we can. But it, it does not uh, – it's a poor substitute, I guess, for what we're accustomed to, that's for sure. Uh, David, I think you just hit on a great potential uh, slogan for 2020. We're doing the best we can. That's <laughs> kind of been the theme of the year. Uh, we will do the best we can now to, to kind of go over all of the stuff that that's happened since we last recorded one of these shows. And let's start right there with the NCAA voting to allow campuses uh, to welcome their athletes back for voluntary workouts starting on June 1st. Now, Last week, the NCAA announced first that college football and basketball players could return. Uh, 
get on campus, do the voluntary workouts. And then a few days later, after an email vote, that ruling went for all sports. Uh, So first, David, is that the right decision for the NCAA to kind of open the door for these workouts to get going? I believe it was, Mike, simply because some areas of the country are reopening faster than others. And schools are starting to make plans for the fall semester. And if those regions of the country uh, are, are able to, to host athletes in, in small groups for workouts and conditioning, uh, why not? Uh, this is not the start of practice by, by any stretch, uh, but it's a first step. And it's not like there's a rush to campus on June 1st. Uh, the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are permitting athletes to return June 15th. The SEC has set a June 8th date. Neither the ACC nor the Big 10 has made a conference-wide decision on a date. Now, before we get too deep into the details, let's talk about what we're discussing here. Because first off, certainly in our experience covering football and basketball, these voluntary workouts, they're not really voluntary. Everyone is kind of expected to take place. uh, And they're not 11 on 11 practice with coaches. So David, if you could just explain kind of what are we talking about here when we say voluntary workouts? Well, you're... you're your point is very well taken on the voluntary part of this. And, but, but at this point, Mike, I think athletes are so eager and anxious even to get back to campus that you would have 100% participation, be the workouts voluntary or, or otherwise. And I, I think we're talking about common and basic conditioning, running, lifting, stretching, getting back into a nutrition and rest routine that they probably didn't have while at home. And you you touched on this when we first brought it up, but what about the idea of, of sort of creating an imbalance here? If if some schools are doing it, some schools are not, some schools you can come back. So in, here at Virginia, Bronco Mendenhall made it pretty clear that the Commonwealth wouldn't permit it right now. The university isn't okaying it right now. The athletic department hasn't opened the door for it. So the NCA kind of was an initial step. Could this create kind of an imbalance if, if some schools are doing it and some aren't? Some conferences are rolling, some conferences aren't. I think where the imbalance will come in, Mike, is if preseason practices, if actual training camps don't have a universal start date. That's where coaches are going to get very concerned if their week one opponent has considerably more time to prepare. And what is or is there a solution? You've been an advocate before when we've talked about college basketball and having somebody kind of overseeing it all who who makes sure that things are a little streamlined and universal. Uh, The college football playoff is kind of the the Mac daddy, I guess, in, in the college yes. football world, the, the power five conferences being a part of that um, organization, certainly. So what is the solution here? How can, how can we get 50 states, you know, with, with their different policies and 50 governors with their different policies and politics and how many different division one power five institutions and conf- how can we get everybody on the same page? I think the short answer, Mike, is you can't. 
<laughs> and that is going to be one of the um, just oddities and inconveniences of this season. If schools want football as badly as they say they do and need football financially as badly as they say they do, then they're going to have to make compromises. And this very well may be one of those compromises where you go into week one knowing your opponent has had more time to prepare. Ideal? Absolutely not. But necessary in these unique times? Perhaps. And and we've talked a lot on this show about the economics of it all. This might be one of those cases where the coaches – and the president slash ADs are, are a little bit divided uh, because I think the coaches would like to see a little more even ground. And I think the ADs and presidents, not that they don't respect that, but they may have their eye a, a little bit more on the bottom line. And, you know, another wrinkle in this is Notre Dame. And, and I, I, meant, I think it was South Carolina was the other school has already announced kind of amending their, their fall semester calendar, trying to start early, trying to skip the fall break. Um, and then then get students out uh, a little earlier before Thanksgiving when some experts are projecting a potential second wave. Uh, David, how, how does that play into all of this? Well, it's not only Notre Dame and South Carolina, Mike. You're talking about Purdue, North Carolina, Syracuse, North Carolina State. Um, they're, they're all on this schedule now. I think, it, I think it's very interesting. Uh, it seems to me that if you, if you want to – avoid that winter return, so to speak, of of the virus, this is a way to do it. What I wonder about and what I was emailing with our boss, Michael Phillips, about yesterday is could you have, say, the Hokies and Cavaliers in final exams the week of their football game, Thanksgiving weekend? That would be inconvenient to say the least yeah it would certainly complicate things and, and again you know we are sports writers and, and not uh experts in, in pandemics but i'm also a little of the mindset you know people are projecting the second wave uh possibly in november if we bring colleges back and we bring students back and if and we haven't gone this far down the road but if we bring fans back aren't we essentially making matters worse and, and, and don't we risk speeding up the second wave or making the second wave more impactful again this coming from a sports writer not anybody with a medical background but um, to me there's a concern of like okay if you see this coming on the horizon I don't know that rushing back and trying to sneak something in before it hits um, I, I think that might be a little too simple well Mike and I think that's why the notion of fans at least at the start to me is it borders on pie in the sky I just cannot imagine that in September, for example, we're going to be in a football stadium with even close to capacity permitted. And I don't think you will see in in our little cocoon press boxes fully populated. I I think media attendance is going to be strictly limited. I mean, have, have, you, have you seen the, the NASCAR race? That first NASCAR race at Darlington, there were four riders in the press box. 
four, all sitting like 10, 10 feet apart with masks on. Uh, and the announcing team was in Charlotte. They weren't. They weren't even on site. So yeah, it, it, it's going to be very interesting, to say the least. I've definitely wondered about that press box seating, just selfishly for ourselves. And um, my first thought was, if they're not allowing fans in, they've got a whole stadium. <laughs> they, they could right. spread us out in, and every reporter could get their own section, and uh, uh-huh. everything could be transmitted via email and. Uh, press conferences could be done maybe the way we're doing some of these uh, Zoom interview sessions with the UVA staff that that they've been so great about putting together. So, uh, yeah, those are all details that I think have the chance to look very, very different, uh, assuming we do get to play football in the fall. And on that topic, while the show was on, on that break as we're in this rotation here, you had an interview with John Swafford, the, the commissioner of the ACC, and I wanted to go back and, and not miss the chance to talk about that. What's John's outlook kind of on, on where things are and where things may be headed? Mike, John is a naturally optimistic person, and I think he is with this as well. Now, is there a truckload of caution mixed in with that optimism? Absolutely. But I think like most administrators these days, he senses a certain momentum, for lack of better description, toward an on-time start. What it looks like, he has no idea. He's, He's just hopeful that the season can start on time. And part of that momentum is this NCAA decision that we've been talking about. And uh, that brings us to this week's Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. With voluntary workouts allowed in June and states beginning to loosen some of their restrictions, college football will be able to start on schedule in the fall. Take it or leave it, David. Dean, if you had asked me this two weeks ago, three weeks ago, certainly six weeks ago, I would have said an emphatic no. And now I'm, I'm starting to waffle. I really am starting to believe that it's possible that we'll see college football the last weekend of August with just a couple of games in the so-called week zero. And then again, uh, full scale, Labor Day weekend. And one thing that was interesting this week, Mike and Dean, is that the American Council on Education released a survey of 301 university presidents, 83% of whom said it was very likely or possible that in-person classes would begin on their campuses on time in the fall. And if that is indeed the case, then I think there's a very good chance that we see football. Mike, take it or leave it. Yeah, you know, I I understand all the momentum is trending that way and everybody wants it. I'm still a leave it guy. I I still think that too many states have loosened up too quickly. Uh, I I think we're going to see the data that people are making (coughs) decisions based on. I think you're going to see it change radically between now and, and July 1st. Um, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic. I think it's going to be in a negative way. I would love to see football back on time. I would love to be covering games uh, in late August and September, uh, but I've got to leave it. I, I certainly leave the notion that, that it's going to be anything close to normal 
with fans in the stands or any of that. I, I don't see that as possible. But um, right now, I'm going to leave it for starting on time. I think I think the big impact, uh, the big spikes and, and the, the things in the data that are going to decide this decision, I think they're still a month away. Mike, and, and along those lines, I give the ACC credit for creating this COVID-19 advisory group. There's there's one member from each school that includes Dr. Jack McKnight from Virginia or from Virginia and Dr. Mark Rogers from Virginia Tech. And it's chaired by Cameron Wolf from Duke University, who's an infectious disease expert. And I think a lot of the ACC's deliberations on this are going to be informed by those men and women who have medical backgrounds on each campus. And I'll, I'll be very interested to see what those folks have to say in the coming weeks. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and it is a, a smart move to get that group together. It would be an even smarter move to, to let their vote kind of count double. <laughs> you know, if you get into that situation where it's a bunch of people making the decision, I, I do think that you know, the, the wisest path here is to follow the medical experts and, and the ACC took a good step in that direction. You're right by putting together that that panel to kind of at least uh, make sure that the people who are thinking about all aspects of this and the ADs and the presidents they are and, and I think they do have uh, their athletes' best interests at heart. I think they have their schools' best interests at heart, um, and I think they have an eye on the national picture. But it's really hard because it's something that none of these people, um, just like us, none of us were trained to, to understand fully or to, to work with and work around. So, yeah, having a couple people with a, a DR period before your name to, to inform <laughs> you, that's a, a smart decision. And uh, speaking of, of things that really nobody was trained for or, or prepared for, uh, how about recruiting in the time of COVID-19? How about recruiting when you can't? wow a, a kid's parents in the living room. You can't uh, wow him with your facilities tour. You can't walk him around campus and you know pump in the fake crowd noise and all the things they do. David, you wrote a really interesting piece in, in last week's Richmond Times-Dispatch, and it's still up online. Obviously, people can go read it there at richmond.com if they happen to miss it. But you were talking about the success that Bronco Mendenhall and UVA football, his staff, have had recruiting despite the obstacle of not being able to do that work in person in the normal ways. Take us through a little bit of, of you know what that story was. Sure. I, I just found it, it curious that a year ago at this time, Mike, for the class of 2020, Virginia had five commitments. Right now for the class of 21, the Cavaliers have 13. And 10 of them have come since the pandemic shutdown. So in the virtual recruiting world. So clearly, somehow, some way, Bronco Mendenhall and his staff have been able to connect not only with prospects, but their families. Now, all of this has a very large caveat attached to it in that kids change their minds prospects all the time, even in a normal recruiting cycle. And I think in this virtual recruiting cycle, we may see even more of it. In fact, we've already seen some of it. You know, Virginia Tech lost the the quarterback from Texas, Demetrius Davis, who then in turn committed to Auburn. Even, even Clemson 
had a commitment from the highest rated defensive player in the country, Corey Foreman from out in California. He has since reopened his recruiting or recruitment. So all of this is offered with with that as as a warning, but still for Virginia to have 13 pledges this thus far, including three from from in state, I, I believe it is. Um, that that's that's pretty good. Yeah, you know, I wanted to hit on that. That um, you know they've got a, a commitment from Charlottesville, a commitment from Richmond. Three you mentioned from in state, which is up for <laughs> what they've done in recent years. But they're all over. They're they're in Georgia. They're Washington State. They have a, a mm-hmm. four star defensive end from from Washington State who never gets to set foot on campus, right? And and commits. And I think your point is well taken that all of these commitments always are non binding, and this could be a particularly fluid year, but. There's also on the other end, there's nobody putting a gun to the head of these kids to say, you've got to commit right now. In these uncertain times, I think a lot of prospects are thinking, I'm going to wait. I'm, I'm going to play this out. I don't, I, I'd like to get on campus. I'd like to take a visit. I'd like to know more. The fact that 13 athletes in these uncertain times were willing to kind of step forward and say, yeah, I'm on board. I like this. That is impressive. You're right. And, and that is worth noting. And David, take us a little inside. What's behind the success? How are they doing it? You shared some details of, of Josh McCarron's recruitment. He's that four-star defensive end uh, out of Washington State that I mentioned. How are they getting these kids to, to see UVA, to feel UVA, and to buy in? Well, in, in various interviews with, with different recruiting websites, Mike, uh, McCarron described, not in, not in detail, but kind of the overview of Virginia's virtual presentation. And it included not only football, but also a very strong academic component. Emma King from the athletic department's academic staff was on the call and, and, and made a presentation. And McCarron even said to, to, to one website that his mother was in tears, not not out of sadness, but like crying happy tears. That she was that impressed. And McCarron used the phrase for him. He said he was blown away by the presentation. So that's you know that is to Virginia's credit. And now it are the Cavaliers going undefeated? No, I mean Jalen Stroman from up in the Manassas area, brother of former Virginia Tech. Not great, but really good defensive back Greg Stroman. He recently committed to the Hokies. No great surprise, but he had Duke and Virginia among his finalists. So no one's going undefeated, but certainly Virginia has a leg up thus far. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear a prospect say that they kind of were wowed by a recruiting pitch because the first thing I thought in these times was you kind of lose the wow factor. Um and it's interesting, too, that what you pointed out about the mom, because I, I thought that, and maybe I give her too much credit, but Carla Williams, the athletic director at, at Virginia, um, had been so involved in, in recruiting with Bronco. And uh, when I asked her, I did a story on that. And I asked her, I said, well, what's the point? What do you bring to the recruiting pitch? You know, are you talking about the budget or the facilities? And, you know, she kind of said that the number one thing she brings is the perspective of a mom. And, uh, you know, as a mom. Why why should you feel good about sending your kid to UVA? And I feel like some of that uh, personal touch, if you will, has maybe spread. And, and when you hear about 
you know, an academic advisor's presentation having that impact, I think maybe some of the credit goes to the tone that's been set in that department. I think you make a really good point. And let's not forget, Mike, that Carl Williams was a pretty fair recruiter as, as an assistant coach, assistant basketball coach at Georgia. And she, too, was a recruited athlete. She, she knows her way around an in-home or an on-campus visit. So I think that helps when you have an athletic director with that kind of experience. No doubt this isn't somebody coming from a straight bookkeeping background <laughs> into the athletic world. This is somebody who is uh, well-experienced in all areas of it. And I'll tell you one more interesting thing on this topic before before we move on. And we had a, a one of those Zoom media sessions with Kelly Papinga. He's the co-defensive coordinator at, at UVA. And he was asked a little bit about the success they're having recruiting. And I thought it was interesting that Kelly said – some of the stuff they're doing with their virtual presentations and with their Zoom interactions, uh, he thinks that they're maybe even better in some ways than what they were doing before. And he thinks some of it will continue after we're past COVID-19, not saying they're going to give up the the in-person on-campus recruitment, the, the visits and all that. But he thinks that some of this stuff has forced them to get a little more creative and a little be, be more effective in making their connections. David, does that make sense? Have we maybe opened a door to here to something that uh, colleges can use to their advantage going forward? Mike, I think it makes sense not only in recruiting, but in life and business in general. I think you are going to see so much more virtual interaction as businesses, individuals, athletic departments, Everybody tries to be more efficient with their money, with their time. I mean, think of these assistant coaches, a guy like Kelly Papinga or anyone, an assistant coach in any sport on the college level is on the road constantly away from their kids, away from their spouses. And if somehow, some way, this technology can bring them home more often, keep them off the road, fewer flights, fewer drives, more time at home with the family. What in the heck is wrong with that? Yeah, well said. And the only industry that could be in trouble there is people who manufacture pants, because if we're <laughs> if we're all working from home, I think there's going to be a, a much less of a need for the, the closet full of dress pants that, that I know I keep and most of us keep, because uh, as I sit here doing this podcast without going into too much detail, uh, I am not in long pants and a button-down shirt. I, I will tell you that about my, my wardrobe. So <laughs> among Mike, the many- I, I, I don't know that I have worn a pair of dress pants or a collared shirt since March 12th and and I'm I'm not ashamed to admit it. And, And one more story about the virtual world, and this is before the pandemic. Bronco Mendenhall never interviewed at UVA. That whole process was done virtually. He never had to come on camps. They toured him through the facilities and on now he had he had coached there with with Brigham Young, but he never came to campus. They met elsewhere and then when they wanted to show him things, they had a website, 
They had a virtual tour. Never had to come to campus. Makes it a little harder for guys like you and I to track Correct. these coaching Correct. That's exactly interviews. why they did it, dude. How covert. How covert of them. <laughs> now, among the other things, we talk about the recruiting. And, and part of recruiting, uh, David, has, has been this push to kind of remake rosters with transfers and grad transfers. We've seen both UVA and, and Tech do it. And uh, same thing, right? Same thing about connecting with athletes that you don't necessarily have on campus. But these are athletes that, that could have a huge impact on the coming season. And uh, that brings us to who you got. Thank you, Mike. UVA and Virginia Tech have both seen their football and basketball teams remake their rosters with the additions of transfers, including a number of uh, grad transfers. But who you got? Which transfer eligible this year to compete will have the biggest impact for Tech or UVA? Mike. Yeah, I I think I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit and the easy answer here in in Keaton Thompson and uh, the transfer from Mississippi State, the quarterback heading to Virginia. And I know he's going to have to compete with Brennan Armstrong and We went into a little more detail in the last episode about that battle, but I had a chance to do a story where I talked to some coaches who had coached against him, uh, including Lorenzo Ward, a former Virginia Tech assistant. He coached against Mississippi State and Thompson in a bowl game while he was at Louisville. Uh, Thompson played a great game, and he told me flat out he thinks Keaton Thompson is a better version of Bryce Perkins. Now, that stunned me because Bryce Perkins was – to, to me, a, a dynamic athlete, that the likes of which we haven't seen at Virginia in a long time. Uh, but he said he thinks that Thompson can be a better version of that. He said he thinks he's already a better passer. He said he thinks he's equally as athletic, maybe not as explosive, but more powerful a runner. Uh, he really thinks that, that UVA may have upgraded the quarterback position. And to me, that was just shocking. But I'll buy into the hype a little bit at least and, and, and say I'll go with him. Mike, I I think if nothing else, Keaton Thompson will make Brennan Armstrong better, just the competition. So I I think you're right in in his impact on UVA's football program. But to me, and we've talked about this before, and he's not a recent transfer, but the transfer who is eligible this year to compete for the first time, who will have the biggest impact at Tech or UVA – and you know where I'm going with this, oh, yeah. is Sam Hauser. Yeah. I mean, I just I don't think there's any question that what he brings to Cavaliers basketball is just huge for the upcoming season. You're talking about a big wing who can score, as the coaches like to say, at all three levels. He can shoot it with range. He's got mid-range. He can He can do it in the paint. And as long as he is marginally competent defensively, he is going to see a lot of minutes. That's a great point. I had a chance to talk to to Sam and Joey Hauser for a story recently and uh, the brothers there and and Joey now at Michigan State in the same deal with sitting out and we talked about it and he said he might be the only person more excited for Sam to play at UVA than Sam is. Joey's very eager to watch his brother. And he told me, to your point, David, that people underestimate his brother's defensive ability. Now, that's coming from a brother, so obviously biased, but it's also coming from a guy who plays a lot of one-on-one in the driveway with Sam Hauser. So uh, maybe there's a little reason for optimism on the defensive end there, courtesy of Sam's brother, Joey. Well, and wouldn't ESPN and the two respective conferences 
be wise to pair Virginia and Michigan State in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Oh, phenomenal. Or we've seen some great Michigan State UVA games in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, I asked the brothers about that too. And uh, Joey in particular would really like the idea of maybe having the chance to, to play against his brother. And uh, it's a cool sibling rivalry they have. They they have a, a miniature golf course that they put together in their backyard to pass the time during COVID. Some some other fun things they find ways to compete. Uh, a very good friendly rivalry. And yeah, you're right. That would make for some uh, must-see television. Now, something we won't be seeing, uh, unfortunately, at a number of schools, we're seeing a number of schools, group of five in particular, cutting teams, cutting programs to help get their budgets back in line. Here in the Commonwealth at ODU, we're not going to see wrestling. Uh, ECU, which estimated a budget shortfall of over $10 million because of the impact of COVID-19, they dropped four teams, uh, men's and women's swimming and diving and men's and women's tennis. David, are you surprised? And are we going to see more of this? No and yes. Not surprised, and yes, we are going to see more. I mean, Mike, you mentioned East Carolina's four sports. Appalachian State yesterday, three. Akron previously, three. You mentioned Old Dominion. Cincinnati was the first when they dropped men's soccer. Bowling Green just this week dropped baseball. Now, these are all group of five schools. We haven't seen it at the Power Five level And I don't believe that we will. But I think it's a function of two things. Not only the COVID pandemic, but also the fact that it exposed many of these schools as just trying to do too much. You have to, to be a Division I member, you have to sponsor 16 sports. Well, a lot of these schools were in the low 20s. They were just overextending themselves financially. And this, what we're going through now, has just made that all too clear and, and forced them to, to make these cuts. And, and they are. They're, you, you feel for the athletes. You feel for the coaches. And just so many lives impacted. But long term, it was just not sustainable. Yeah, I've always sort of marveled at Stanford and, and Texas and places that – that just seem to have every sport available. But when you think about it, they also have a lot of dollars available and, and to make it logistically possible. Now, and most places aren't like that. And to your point, the, the group of five schools certainly uh, not like that, not unlimited funds. Uh, so what are some other things that, that we may see besides just dropping programs? What are some other things that can be done? Can we, can we see, might we see a move toward, which I've always thought made sense, regional conferences for the sports other than football and basketball. In other words, let football and basketball have their far-flung conferences, travel all over the country, do what they do, because they drive the revenue to pay for that. But does it make a lot of sense for your softball team to play conference games halfway across the country, for your tennis team to go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, to play conference matches? Um, Might we see a a push here towards sort of a restructuring? I don't At the Power Five level, Mike, I don't know that we'll see a restructuring in terms of conference affiliation. What I think you may see is far fewer conference games and maybe even far fewer games, period, but then creating more non-conference dates 
which then would be almost strictly regional. Now, for the, the group of five, I think you could see dramatic realignment. I mean, the fact that Old Dominion is in a conference, Conference USA, with four Texas schools and none in Virginia, and its closest league rival being Charlotte, is preposterous. And here's a little geography test for you. What is Liberty's closest Atlantic Sun rival geographically? I wouldn't. I wouldn't even. Maybe is it the one of the Floridas? The New Jersey Institute of Technology. <laughs> well, as a New Jersey native, I know that yes. that's not very close. I used to make that trip uh, for holidays like Thanksgiving. So that's not uh, – yeah, and, and that's exactly the point. I mean, it, it's just – to me, it's ridiculous – that some of these schools are traveling, you know, from Virginia to Texas to play. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying anything about these sports, but to play a softball game, to play a, a tennis match, to, to have a swimming meet, that you have to go all the way from Virginia to Texas, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and I remember in college at Rutgers, you know, Rutgers was a member of the Big East. And um, that was a good, <laughs> good regional conference. It was a great conference, but in terms of travel, it made a lot of sense. And uh, I remember that even the wrestling program had broken out and was because fewer schools had wrestling uh, and it was in its own conference for wrestling. And th- that's what I just kind of envision is a situation where schools are clustered based on geography. That becomes your conference and it goes for every sport except for football and basketball because football and basketball, they have their their thing, and their thing is driven by the money, and it, it makes sense on that end of things. But it just doesn't doesn't feel sustainable to me. No, I don't, I don't believe it is. And Mike, this week there there was a story from the Sports Business Journal, and you talk about something that would be drastic. But the journal reported that the American Athletic Conference, which includes uh, the aforementioned East East Carolina and Cincinnati, that for sports other than football and men's and women's basketball, they are talking about no conference games in the Olympic <laughs> sports. They would still have conference championships and perhaps seed the teams by computer rankings, <laughs> but everyone would be free to schedule all their other sports strictly on a regional basis. Makes sense in some ways. As Bronco Mendenhall has told us about his time as an independent, scheduling non-conference can be a bit of a bear. I I can't imagine trying to fill out an entire uh, calendar schedule that way, especially competing against a lot of those schools, competing against each other for those non-conference dates. David, I wanted to to hit a couple couple odds and ends before we get out of here, and I want to start with Virginia Tech uh, basketball, which found out it's losing P.J. Horn now. Um, he's transferring out of the program, the, the senior forward. He becomes the, the fourth player they're losing, the third to enter the transfer portal. Uh, obviously, Landers Nolly, we've talked about the leading scorer, and now Horn is joining that group. Uh, is it alarming, David, or is it just naturally what happens when a coach remakes his roster? I think it's pretty natural, Mike. I mean, Virginia fans remember when Tony Bennett came on board. There was a rash of transfers early on in in his tenure. And it, it's certainly not just Virginia and Virginia Tech. This happens in coaching transitions all the time. And hey, 
P.J. Horn, I believe, started 30 of 32 games this past season. But the Hokies are going to be bigger next season. Mm -hmm. And P.J. Horn was an undersized power forward, even occasional center. And I believe that he looked at the Hokies roster and thought to himself, I'm not going to see 30 starts next season. And I'm not going to see 25 plus minutes. And he figured, why not go play somewhere where I can get that? I don't, I don't find it alarming. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in the ACC, to move to the three, you want to be a little more uh, athletic, explosive than maybe what you get out of PJ Horn. So the choices are be that undersized four, or be that sort of overmatched three. It, it didn't make a lot of sense. And you know, in terms of alarm, it's not like we're creating holes, right? Mike Young has got Kevi Aluma, who, who followed him from uh, from Wofford, who set out this past season. He's ready to transfer in. He's got the forward out of Iowa coming in as a grad transfer. He's got the point guard from K-State coming in as a grad transfer. So uh, th- th- my point is this door is swinging both ways. <laughs> yes, yeah. guys are going out, but guys are coming in. The recruiting class includes a pair of four stars from in-state here in Virginia. Uh, so I, I think this is, this is a natural kind of reshaping of things and uh, you know, on the other side, Virginia Tech football, they found out that they're losing Jeremy Webb. And uh, to me, it's, it's more of a, a sad story for Jeremy Webb. Yes. He's the kid who came in as a junior college transfer. This first day on campus or second day on campus, he tore his Achilles. He worked all his way back, was ready to, to get back and, and contribute. Uh, and he tore the second Achilles. He told us a day before he was going to be cleared by doctors for a full return. Uh, he ended up playing in three games. He had one career tackle at Tech. To me, it's just a a bummer for a a kid who it seems like put in a lot of hard work to never really see it pay off at Tech. Yeah, the coaching staff always raved about him, Justin Fuente in in particular. They just – they hurt for that kid to see him just be – every time he was so close and then to – to endure another setback. I think there was a lot of empathy for him. And you know, two years ago, but when, when he first arrived, they were really high on this young man and pr- projected him as, as a starter, and it just never panned out. And now the Hokies are pretty well stocked at the corner position. So again, much like P.J. Horn, I think Jeremy Webb looked at the landscape and thought, if I'm going to be playing my senior season, I'd like to do it somewhere where I'm going to see the field. And that's probably not going to happen here in Blacksburg. Thinking about landscape and and the landscape of athletics in Virginia, uh, VCU's athletic director, Ed McLaughlin, has has been uh, just a huge part of what they've been able to do in basketball, the idea of losing coaches and kind of reloading at the coach position and, and <laughs> keeping that thing going. And, um, you know, we, Ed's one of those really accessible athletic directors for us in the media. Uh, there's a possibility that the landscape could be changing there and he could be heading elsewhere. Isn't that right? Well, I, th- I think it is, Mike. Ed is a Boston College graduate. And Boston College has an AD vacancy, what with Martin Jarman having left for the uh, UCLA job. And uh, you mentioned Ed's impact at, at VCU. And, you know, let's not forget that $25 million practice complex mm-hmm. that, that sits outside the Siegel Center, for which I think he deserves uh, considerable 
credit, certainly not all of it, but uh, he, he was a big driving force there and annual giving on his watch, uh, according to VCU's website, has doubled. Boston College is, is a school that really needs that kind of fundraising acumen. And he's a very natural candidate. I think when you're looking at Ed's resume, the only thing you would question is his administ- in his administrative career, he's never been at a football school. And football, obviously, as we've mentioned so many times, is, is the economic engine. But I think Ed's Boston College roots would more than uh, compensate for that. And there are other candidates, Pat Kraft uh, from Temple, Grace Calhoun from Penn, Ryan Bamford from Massachusetts are among the most mentioned uh, candidates for the Boston College job. And Ed McLaughlin was a candidate when Martin Jarman was hired three years ago. So this is not uh, anything new for, for Ed and, and VCU. And I, I wouldn't think that any Rams fan would resent him exploring this opportunity. It's a power five gig at his alma mater. Who among us wouldn't? Makes a lot of sense. And I mentioned at the onset that we're going to go every other week with the podcast. So by the time we come back, we may be talking about what happened there at <laughs> whether or not Ed is still here in the Commonwealth, whether he's joined our other end of coverage in the ACC, and uh, who knows, David, honestly, in two weeks what may happen and what we may be talking about. But that's our show for this week. So thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts. Just find RTD Podcast Channel, and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers, including a sports-only option at richmond.com. And I know I speak for David as well here when I say we, we really uh, that you've given to local journalism, especially in these tough times. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join us again in two weeks. Two weeks.